Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the History Today podcast for February 2012. My name's Dean, and I'm the website manager at History Today. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Hugh Purcell about a tragic love affair between an English captain and an American journalist during the Spanish Civil War. She went back to America, brought up their little boy, and as soon as he was 18, she killed herself. And she said, um, life without Tom was not worth living. We also hear from Keith Lowe, who discusses the conditions in post-war Germany and what the end of the Third Reich meant for the average German citizen. There are about 10 million homeless Germans in Germany. Um, they, they've got nowhere to live but apart from making makeshift uh, shelters in between piles of rubble with a bit of tarpaulin spread over the top. Also in this edition, Sam Moorhead and David Stuttard introduced their new book, The Romans Who Shaped Britain. When you start to look at some of the individual characters, the governors, the emperors, other officials in the province in detail, you begin to realise it's a much more complex pattern of human activity, let alone all the detritus of archaeology that we've discovered in the last 30 years. First up, we have Hugh Purcell, who wrote an article in the February issue of History Today about Tom Wintringham, the English captain at the Battle of Haramar in the Spanish Civil War, and his love affair with American journalist Kitty Bowler. Catherine Hadley interviewed Hugh and began by asking him to tell us a little about the kind of person Wintringham was. Well, he was a rather unusual communist in that he came from a middle-class background. His father was a solicitor in Grimsby. His father, his uncle, had been the only MP to die literally on the floor of the House of Commons. He had a heart attack. But Tom was virtually a founder member of the Communist Party um, on intellectual reasons, um, he went increasingly left-wing, um, and he was always quite active politically. Um, behind, he was sent to prison in 1925. The leadership of the Communist Party were rounded up because the government feared a general strike, and they wanted the communists, who were obviously fomenting a revolution, behind bars. So he spent six months in Wandsworth. Um, later on, he became the um, the Communist Party's expert on warfare. He became the military correspondent of the Daily Worker. And as such, Harry Pollitt, who was the General Secretary, sent him to Spain in uh, 1936. Um, and 
What is not known, but I feel quite strongly about, it was he who had the original idea for international brigades. It's hard to prove how influential he was, but he was campaigning within the party for an international legion, as he called it, even before he went to Spain, right at the very start of the war in the summer of 36. And the brigades were started by the Comintern at the end of September. And he's generally recognised as one of the seminal figures in starting the, the, the international brigades. Right? I'll just say one other thing. His first role, apart from being a journalist, was to be a responsable, which was a political appointment. But he hated that. He wanted to fight. And so he joined the international brigades originally as a machine gun instructor. And then amazingly, on the very eve of Harimar, the commander of the British battalion... McCartney, uh, was shot in an accident in a cafe. So Tom Wintringham then, did he continue to be the leader of the British battalion throughout the Spanish no, Civil War? No, He was the commander for Harimar. He was wounded on the second day. And um, so he was in hospital. He then got typhoid and he very nearly died. And uh, when he came back, he only had time to fight in one other battle, when, um, coincidentally, also on the second day, he was injured again. So his total amount of fighting in the whole of the Spanish Civil War was only four days. Um, and um, what happened shortly afterwards was he was repatriated to England and um, uh, he refused to leave his mistress, whom he met in Spain, this Kitty Bowler, who was accused, quite wrongly, of being a Trotskyite spy, and so he was forced to leave the party. He was expelled from the Communist Party in 1938. Um, but he probably would have left the party soon afterwards anyway, for various reasons. Um, so his, no, uh, his, later on, he became an expert on warfare, particularly guerrilla warfare, and he is chiefly remembered for his role in that in the Second World War. But all that was based on his experience in Spain, and all that was based, actually, on only four days' actual fighting. And so what happened to... He obviously had, I suppose, one of the reasons why he was able to have this love affair with Kitty Bowler no. was perhaps because he was injured and wasn't on the front line. But what happened to them then after? <laughs> <laughs> well, she was pretty intrepid. She would have got anywhere where he was. Uh, but that's all speculation. Um, uh what happened to them after Spain? Yes. Yes. Well, um, she came over. She was American. She came. She was hounded out. At, she didn't join the American Communist Party. She wasn't able to because of her reputation. And she came over, and Tom was ill, and she joined three other Mrs. Winteringhams around his bedside, plus an old girlfriend of his from the Great War. So that was four of these women. Must have confused the nurses. Uh, they got married. Um, she helped him throughout the Second World War when he ran a guerrilla training school in London and she helped him found a political party called the Commonwealth Party. And um, Tom died unexpectedly soon after the war, right. 1949. She went back to America, brought up their little boy and as soon as he was 18... She killed herself, and she said um, life without Tom was not worth living. 
so she died in the early 1960s. Moving on to the Battle of Haraman, yeah. its 75th anniversary yeah. this year, this February. Um, I think the, it was on the 11th of, 12th of February. It continued for another three or four months. It ended in a stalemate in May-June with the nationalist forces still unable to take the Madrid-Valencia road and thereby encircle Madrid. So in that case, in that respect, it was a victory for the Republican side. But the fierce fighting <coughs> was the first two days, the first two or three days, when the British battalion lost almost a third, about a third, 200 men of their entire losses in the whole Spanish Civil War. It was a complete bloodletting the first two days. No fault of Tom. Tom did his best and was regarded by the brigaders as a very competent commander. But these boys, they're mostly boys, they'd had very little experience of warfare. They hardly even had um, practice with rifles. And they were thrown in against the uh, Franco's army of Spain, who were professional Moorish soldiers from North Africa. And the, um, the Russians, who really, the politicians, well, they were, they were commissars, um, who tried to lead the battle, uh, were all for attack, 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 and it was absolutely hopeless. And, and um, the British were put in a suicidal position. Hence, they called the hill Suicide Hill, in which many of them lost their lives. And Tom was fighting a kind of um, rearguard action. Uh, and um, he was wounded at the end of the second day. And then, in fact, the British battalion retreated. But then it advanced again a few days later, recaptured the line, and then there was a sort of bloody slog. The Russians came in with tanks, and there was fought over a huge front. I mean, the British were only one end of the line, you see. There were big events going on elsewhere. But it ended up as a draw in, in a few months later. And how do you think the battle is remembered today, then? In Spain, and this is quite extraordinary to me, the previous socialist government undid the kind of amata of Franco's time. In Franco's time, you weren't allowed to talk about the war, particularly if you were on the losing side. And the socialist government has legitimised inquiry into the war, particularly the graves of many disappeared Republican civilians and soldiers. And so Haramar is going to be remembered in a big way. There's a new museum has been built and a sculptor of a combatant has been made out of shrapnel found on the battlefield. Now, this is extraordinary because Tom wrote a very famous poem called Monument, his most famous poem, which says something like, take these, and he refers to the detritus of war, and build a monument. He was dead against any kind of cenotaph or glory of God thing. He thought war was awful. He wanted all the muck of war, spent bullet shrapnel, to be put in a heap, and that would be the monument. And that is, in fact, as what has been done. And so uh, Tom's grandson... Nils will read Tom's famous poem Monument at the unveiling of this sculpture on uh, the 17th of February. And um, in fact, there are a number of new graves, new monuments being put up, and they tend to choose Tom's poem Monument translated into Spanish as the tribute on the graves. These are elsewhere to other graves of disappeared soldiers. Um, 
And then we're going on uh, to, to um, talk in Albacete, which was the, where the International Brigade was based. And apparently, I can hardly believe this, already 120 British have booked to come out, uh, mostly from the northern towns. Now, they will be descendants of brigaders because the brigaders are all dead now, just about. I think they all are. And uh, so it has a great resonance. The whole war has a huge resonance in Britain as the last great cause. How, whatever, however much you might doubt uh, our British role in, in other wars, whether it was worth fighting, whether whether British did well, the Spanish Civil War has this romantic attachment to you know, the fight for democracy mm. and the fight for freedom when many, many volunteers who hadn't left the country before went out to do their bit. And it, it is still the most romantic, um, the most romantic. It's rather like um, the French Revolution was in France. I mean, it divided Britons as well. But whatever, it was the most dramatic and, and, and romantic of, of, of wars. Hugh also offered to read us one of Tom Winchingham's poems. He wrote this in August 1937. It's called Monument. When from the deep sky and digging in the harsh earth, when by words hard as bullets, thoughts simple as death, you have won victory, people of Spain, you will remember the free men who fought beside you, enduring and dying with you, the strangers whose breath was your breath. Take then these metals, under the deep sky, melt them together. Take these pieces of earth and mix them. Add your bullets and memories of death. You have won victory, people of Spain, and the tower into which your earth is built, and your blood and ours, shall state Spain's unity, happiness and strength. It shall face the breath of the east, of the dawn, of the future, when there will be no more strangers. That was Hugh Purcell on the Battle of Hadamar. Next up, Keith Lowe talks to Catherine Hadley about the conditions in post-war Germany. So, um, Keith, you wrote um, our From the Archive piece this month about basically how Britain dealt with post-war Germany and some of the dilemmas, sort of economic, political, moral dilemmas that Britain faced with how to deal um, with Germany after the Second World War. Um, but I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about actual post-war Germany um, and how Germany was affected, um, how people's lives were affected as well. Yes, well, the, I mean, the most obvious uh, way that people's lives were affected was uh, in all the, the physical destruction that they were, they were uh, forced to experience through, through, through the war. Um, I mean, it's not necessarily something that they themselves particularly noticed after the war because it had happened gradually during, during the war with all the bombing and so on. But uh, the people who did notice it were were the Allied officials who came across from Britain in 1945 to to administer the country, and you know they, they had a an idea of what they were going to uh, see when they got there. They knew that there'd been a big bombing campaign. They they uh, some of them had seen photographs um, before they came, and but th they kind of thought it was going to be along the same lines as. Uh, the Blitz was in Britain, and they, they couldn't have been more wrong. When they arrived, the sheer extent of the devastation really shocked them. All, all their letters and diary entries at the time uh, really bring this home. Um, 
I mean, just to put some figures on it, uh, in Britain, there were about 200,000 homes were destroyed by the Blitz. Now, in Germany, it was more like three and a half million homes destroyed. So in, in purely numerical terms, it's 18 times as bad in Germany as it was in Britain. Um, so, you know, what, what did this mean for ordinary people? Well, it meant that there are about 10 million homeless Germans in Germany. Um, they, they've got nowhere to live but apart from you know, making makeshift uh, shelters in between piles of rubble with a bit of tarpaulin spread over the top. Or they're living in, in burnt out basements. They're, they're living in encampments in the woods. There was even a, a little girl who was found um, living in a crack in the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial in Berlin. So these are the kind of conditions that people were forced to live in after the war. And then on top of that, I guess there's psycho. I mean, that's kind of the physical side, but then there's the psychological damage and the fact that other countries are, are treating them as evil people or the products of a kind of evil country that has to be punished. Well, the, I mean, the Germans were, uh, as as you can expect, uh, were the, the pariahs of, of, of Europe um, after the war, and, and they were treated as such. I mean, I mean revenge, that's one of the, the main themes of my book, actually, is, is reve revenge is everywhere. It's at every level of society. Um, people don't want to... Uh, they don't want to associate with Germans. Uh, they certainly don't want to have Germans in their own countries. So there was a huge programme of expulsions which took place across Europe, actually, um, uh, where where people removed their ethnic German populations and, and sort of shunted them across the border into Germany. Um, of course, when they got there, they, uh, they they were not exactly welcomed. I mean, I mean, you already had. 10 million homeless people, the last thing you needed was another 16 million <laughs> refugees on top. And, um, I mean, hunger was was epidemic in, in Germany as well. So 16 million more mouths to feed were not, you know, that's, that's not going to be welcomed either. It, it started in, probably in Czechoslovakia, uh, around that, that sort of fringe area of the, of the country, which was called the Sudetenland. Um, the Sudetenland was was kind of what started the war off in the first place mm. when the, when the Nazis invaded to supposedly liberate their German minority there, and naturally the the Czechs didn't want to have this minority still living within the fringes of their country, and, and possibly you know, bringing the same thing to them again in the future. So they they rounded up all, all the Germans who who lived around the the edges of Czechoslovakia and and and, and expelled them across the border. Now some of the expulsions were. Were, well, they were brutal to say the least. I mean, the, the, the standard way of doing things was to um, knock on the door of uh, this, whatever German family you wanted to get rid of, uh, tell them they had 10 minutes to, to grab their things, and then they were herded together and, and literally walked across the border and, and not allowed back again. Along the way, there were um, various atrocities that took place, and quite understandable, I suppose, given what the Czechs themselves had been through, that, that people wanted to take revenge. But, but nevertheless, it, it, there were atrocities. Um, the most famous of them happened at a place called Usti nad Labem, which the Germans knew as Ausig. I mean, there have been lots of exaggerations about what happened, what actually happened there, but um, there were at least dozens of people who were, who were shot um, or thrown into the river. There was a, a, a mother and her child who were thrown into the river and drowned. Um, 
then there were plenty of other places where there were similar massacres. One, one of the most interesting ones, actually, was um, in a place called Prerov, where there was a trainload of Germans who were being expelled from Slovakia, it was coming through the Czech Republic um, on its way to Germany. And a, a, a detachment of, of Czech um, militiamen stopped the train, pulled everybody off, and uh, lined them up along the railway track and shot them. Now, amongst the 260 or so people who were on this train, there were 74 children, the youngest of which was only eight months old. And, um, you know, later on, when they asked the, the, the leader of this militia group why he'd killed the children, he's supposed to have answered, well, you know, what was I supposed to do with the children when I'd already shot their parents? So it just goes to show uh, there's, there's, you know, the Nazis don't have a, a, a monopoly on, on, on violence and atrocity. And have there been any studies of what those who did get back to Germany, how they were integrated or accepted or not? There was a, uh, a, a, an entire ministry set up uh, in Germany called the Federal Ministry for Expellees and War Victims. Um, and, and their job was to, to try and integrate these people. But the problem is that, that a lot of Germans, the Reich Germans themselves, didn't view these people as proper Germans. They, they thought, thought of them as foreigners. They didn't want them in their midst. They, they, they didn't want to give them jobs. They certainly didn't want to, to house them or, or put them up in their own places. So a, a lot of these people were... Um, sort of festering in, in, in displaced person camps well into the 1950s. And there are all kinds of complaints about how they were or were not integrated into society. Arguably, they're still not really integrated mm -hmm. into society. They, they, they're still, to this day, maybe not the original generation, but their children are still talking about trying to go back to those countries where they, that they were originally expelled from. Which is causing all kinds of problems in the the economic union, as 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 uh, the other countries, the Eastern European countries, argue against this vociferously. Finally, we can just talk a little bit about the historiography and how that has evolved. I suppose in the mainstream, uh, all the way through from the sort of nineteen forties through the fifties, sixties, seventies, into the eighties, even the. Um, the Germans were, I mean, they were always cast as the villains. They, they, it was quite black and white. Germany were the perpetrators and everybody else were the victims. I mean, a few exceptions, of course, but that's that sort of mainstream view. And you only need to see, you know, 1970s war films to, to see the way that they're, they're portrayed. Now, to a certain extent, the Germans themselves have kind of taken that on the chin um, and... Uh, sort of accepted it to a to a degree um you know that this the cliche of of the uh, german exchange student who always apologizes for the war i mean that that's based on reality i, I remember growing up surrounded by german exchange students who were doing exactly that mm. so you know germans were always cast as the villains now in the 1990s i suppose uh after reunification and the fall of the berlin wall and so on attitudes started to change a little. Um, uh, Germans started to realise that they were not only perpetrators, but also victims. Um, so, for example, there was, a, there, was a, um, there was a famous documentary that was shown on German, German television in 1992, all about the rapes, 
that happened after the war, particularly at the hands of, of Soviet soldiers. Mm. And uh, it, it was enormously important um, that this kind of story was told. And it hadn't really... It had been taboo for a long time. Um, but there was an enormous amount of controversy over this. Uh, there were all kinds of academics who were writing to the press um, complaining that the, the, the documentary had ever been aired because um, it... They, they were worried that if Germans started to see themselves as victims of atrocity, they might start to lose sight of the fact that they had also been perpetrators. Mm. And they were also slightly worried that uh, you know the, the, the horror of what these women had gone through would be uh, seen in some way as sort of payment for the crimes that Germans themselves had committed. So in a, in a sort of sick kind of way, it would cancel out the, the evils of the Holocaust. So... Anyway, so through the 1990s, there was a, a, a sort of swing the other way um, where Germans began to see themselves much more as, as victims, culminating in a book by Jörg Friedrich, which was a massive bestseller in Germany, um, uh, all about the experience of German civilians under Allied bombing. It's only now, really, that, that a balance is kind of being struck where... where Things aren't seen in such black and white terms. People are beginning to see things more in shades of grey. And I think it's no coincidence that this is about the time, you know, it's about 70 years after the war. And uh, that, that generation is, is beginning to die off. So the, the emotions around the subject are, are not quite as high as they, they once were. That was Keith Lowe talking about post-war Germany. In our third and final interview for this edition, we hear from Sam Moorhead and David Stuttard whose new book, The Romans Who Shaped Britain, is released this month. So I wondered, how is your book different to all the millions of others written on Roman Britain? I'm well aware that Roman Britain has an enormous library of books. Most of them do tend to follow a fairly standard pattern. This one is slightly different, because when I conceived it many years ago, I was wanting to write about people more than about archaeological or merely historical facts. And I wanted to place those people in a landscape which is Roman Britain. And I wanted to flesh out those people's characters and also their experiences elsewhere in the Roman Empire before and after they came to Britain. To give the reader an understanding that Britain is part of the Roman Empire rather than Britain just being a little province in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, so to speak, which can be studied independently. However, when David came on board, the book took another turn which which divorced it even further from the standard book on Roman Britain. We explore the motivations of those people from the initial uh, invaders like Caesar and, and Claudius, who really had an eye both on the, the, the public at home in Rome and also the economic imperative as well. They, they, they'd heard that, you know, in, in the south of England there were hides and metals and all sorts of things that they were very eager to, to get their hands on. And then as the history of uh, the, the occupation goes on, the, uh, the, the way in which um, the, the, the island itself is being viewed both back in in Italy and here as well, alters. It becomes, it takes on a, a persona of its own 
really, from being this very uh, strange, obscure, remote place. It becomes more civilized, more Romanized by halfway through the the period of the occupation. It becomes a very important um, part of the the Western Empire. And I, I think the the word that David has used and. I now fully corroborate with is that this, in a way, is an epic of Britannia, and it's an epic about the province, who herself is depicted as a warlike lady for much of the second century, on the back of coins, for example, and she herself is the subject of this epic, and of course, as David says, at the end of the period, she reverts to being much more barbarian in her description the Roman historians. So Britannia is the source of this, and you see her as a human being who is pumping blood, so to speak, rather than as an archaeologist or a historian today would see her. And I come from an academic background. I've written a lot about Roman coinage in Britain, for example. That's my academic field. But I've also worked on excavations and other archaeological projects. And I'm one of those people who does number crunch. I'm one of those people who does come up with some fairly obscure uh, data about the province, and I will try and construct that into something of a narrative. So I'm not in any way criticising the archaeological approach, but the problem is that the archaeological approach can, in its own right, become a circular argument. It can become a circular discipline, which doesn't actually break out from the statistics and the pseudoscience that envelops it, to actually again see the province as a province of people and of people actually doing things, making those decisions. And no doubt about it, uh, I thought I knew a lot about Roman Britain. I've been studying and working on the subject for 30 years. But when you start to look at some of the individual characters, the governors, the emperors, other officials in the province in detail, you begin to realise it's a much more complex pattern of human activity let alone all the detritus of archaeology that we've discovered in the last 30 years. And coming back to the people, I mean, mm -hmm. I suppose we do, we do think that we know Roman Britain and the Roman Empire, and we know the big names like Caesar, um, Nero, Hadrian, mm -hmm. but actually it seems that there were a lot of people obviously involved to make things happen, and mm -hmm. um, I think in your book you explore some of the lesser-known figures, and I wondered if we could talk about one or two of them? Well, I think the character who's come into the fore most in the last couple of years is Carousius, uh, the Froom Horde discovered in 2010, the largest pot of Roman coins ever found in Britain, contains about 800 coins of, of Carousius, who is a rebel emperor. He was a general in the army of Maximian, who was the Western emperor at the time in, in the 280s, and he was put in charge of the fleet from Boulogne, and this fleet was tasked with keeping the Saxon and Frankish raiders who came by sea out of the Roman Empire, and he was very successful at this. The problem was that he was accused of letting the raiders in and only intercepting them on the way out, and then taking the loot and keeping it for himself, and he was condemned to death by Maximian. But not prepared to meet his fate, he ran to Britain and set up an independent empire in Britain. But he's a person who comes over in the sources as almost, as David says, a salty sea dog. He's called the arch pirate by the Roman sources. 
when you look at his coins, he's got this big, thick, bushy beard. He's got a neck the size of a bull. He is a fascinating character. And why Hollywood haven't got their hands on him, I don't know. But there's a great story there. Even better, in good British tradition, he was assassinated by his chancellor, uh, who was Electus. And he was to reign for another three years before he was overcome by the Central Roman Empire under Constantius. But this episode of history, we do tell in some detail. It's an episode which normally, in most books, gets given an account, but it's given an account almost as a footnote to what has happened in the previous two centuries. And other characters we deal with who are also obscure are fourth century. There's also uh, an interesting sort of um, sideline to that, because I think uh, one of the, the fascinating things about Erasius is the way he portrays him himself on his coinage, because here he makes a deliberate attempt to identify himself with the Emperor Augustus, who, of course, is the, the, the person who founded the empire. Here, here you have Erasius in, in London or in, in another pint in, in England, um, really on the, on the outskirts of empire, if you like, trying to um, promote himself in exactly the same image as, as this great Augustus who, who started the whole thing off. It's like he's, he's, he's trying in his own position to say, okay, here's a, here's a, a new empire that I'm, I'm, I'm founding myself. And he goes as far as presenting uh, the Wolfen twins with the quotation, uh, the renewer of Rome on one of his coins, which could not be more Roman if it tried. And interestingly, what David's just said, the Expectate Veni coin shows none other than Britannia shaking his hand in welcome. And I always like to think it's on the White Cliffs of Dover, but that's just a romanticism on my part. Um, but no, Carousius, I think has an awful lot to tell us about the way the province was viewed by the central empire. Because when Carousius's successor, Electus, was finally overcome by Constantius, and there's a wonderful medallion we illustrate in the book that shows Constantius riding into London, and London or Britannia kneeling in front of him, and one of his galleys going up the Thames next to him. But when this surrender is finally made, in the panegyric that is presented in Trier to Constantius, either that year or the year afterwards, it actually talks of how rich Britain's pastures and meadows were and how rich her agricultural lands were and how rich in minerals she was and how the Roman Empire could not afford to survive, could not survive without her. And, and this is a point which the breakaway empire of Carousius brings to us. Had we not had this breakaway, we wouldn't have had these clues as to why they really wanted to get Britain back Britannia was a wild province, and when it wasn't Britannia being wild, it was David's homeland, Caledonia, being wild. And one thing which Roman emperors did like to gain from Britain was a sense of glory for macho behaviour, and that involved invading Britain, and when they invaded Britain, they then started on Scotland. And so it was a place that when you talked about conquering the Britons or the Caledonians back in Rome you were able to attain the highest glory of military feats. And I think the other thing which is very interesting, really, is that 
really in the uh, third and, and fourth century AD, Britannia is also very important within the, the context of the empire as a whole, because it's in Britannia that a very an extraordinarily large number of um, rebel emperors uh, come up, and you you have um, people whom the army here. I think you know there is a there is a an idea among the soldiers and the the army in in Britannia that that isolation that they have because of the fact that they're over the channel over over ocean as they like to see it and this this you know the the english channel was a, a psychological barrier and i think that the 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 um emperors in the heart of the empire the heart of the roman empire are very concerned about just exactly what will happen in Britannia, because as well as it being a source of um, fertility and and grain and petals as well, it's also a source of insurrection, and you know it's a very very tricky uh, part of the empire. <laughs> That's all we have time for this month. Our thanks to Hugh Purcell, Heath Lowe, Sam Moorhead and David Stuttard for their time. You can read Hugh's essay on Tom Wintringham and Keith Lowe's piece on post-war Germany in the February edition of History Today, which is out now. You can also listen to previous editions of the podcast and comment on anything you've heard today by visiting www.historytoday.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.